Lord Jesus, when we open up this letter, in many of our Bibles, the words are in red because they were spoken to John by you. So Lord Jesus, tonight as we come to look at these words, as we come to understand these words, as we come to think about these words and their meaning to us and to our church and to our life, we pray you'd help us to take them seriously, to heed them, to embrace them, and that they would shape and impact our walk with you. Speak this tonight, we pray, Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Every year, tourist boards spend thousands and thousands of pounds trying to promote cities and towns all across the world. Now, I'm going to test out just how well Discover Northern Ireland are doing. Do any of you right now know the tagline that Discover Northern Ireland are using? Let's see, anyone got it? I'll give you a, I'll give you a first word, embrace. Ah, see, they're not doing a good job, are they? Embrace a giant spirit. Has anyone come across that yet? Does it ring a bell? They're not doing a good job, are they? Yeah, they've got this word giant, so it's like, you know, plan a giant trip, and I don't know where they've come up with that, maybe from the giant's causeway. But anyway, sometimes they spend a lot of money on these things, and they don't go too well. But sometimes these tourist boards, they spend money, and cities become known, you know, for what they're all about. The Big Apple, the city that never sleeps. Where's that? Yeah, you know, you know. Now, I reckon if Pergamum had a tourist board, they would be really, really, really annoyed with Jesus. Because Jesus, he doesn't paint Pergamum in a pretty light at all. Did you notice actually what he called it in verse 13? Have a look there. He calls Pergamum the place where Satan has his throne. Hey, come visit Pergamum. Satan lives here. That's what Jesus says. Again, look at the end of verse 13. It says, your city where Satan lives. Pergamum was a very, very dark place to live. It was a place that Jesus said that Satan lived. Now, Satan is a deceiver, and Satan is an enemy of God. And so Jesus is describing the city of Pergamum as being a city that is against God. That is against him in principle. Now, why did Jesus call it the city where Satan lives? Well, there could have been a number of reasons. One reason might have been that, that this city was the center of Caesar worship in the province of Asia. This was the first city in Asia that built a temple to one of the Caesars, to Caesar Augustus, and they did that in 29 BC. This was a city where they worshiped the leader of the Roman Empire, whoever it was, there was this cult and they did all of these cultic things and Caesar was Lord, he was king, he was boss and they worshipped him as a god. Maybe that's why Jesus called it the place where Satan lives. Or maybe it was for another reason. You see, in this city there was this temple and it was a temple to a god called Asclepios. And if I've not pronounced that right, you've no idea, neither do I, but he's called Asclepios, this God. And do you know what Asclepios was represented by? A snake. This represented God was represented by a snake. And in the, in the Bible, the snake is the one who is represented with the devil and Satan, this deceiver, this enemy of God. And the practices of the people who worship Asclepios, it was really quite strange, 
there was a temple in the city and if you were sick, you could go to that temple and you could lie in the dark in the temple overnight and they would let loose tame snakes. And if the snakes came and touched you, then the leaders of that cult said that you would be healed. Maybe that's why Jesus called it the throne of Satan because it was against and going against the only one who could really heal. Or maybe it was because of what was happening on the hill. You see, behind the city, there was this huge, imposing, cone-shaped hill. And on the top of this hill, there were a number of temples, but the temple that was the most famous one was the temple to the god Zeus. Zeus, who they called the Savior. And worshiping Zeus, it was due with sacrificing animals and eating this meat sacrificed to him. To worship Zeus involved sexual immorality in ways that we can't even imagine today. Maybe that's why Jesus called it the throne of Satan. But for whatever reason, this was a dark city, a city filled with idols, a city where the values and the culture and everything about it was against God and against his ways. Now what's amazing, absolutely amazing, is that in this type of city there is a church. In this type of city, there is a group of Christians. There are people who are living for Christ in the middle of this dark, godless, anti-God city. Isn't that amazing? You see, God is at work even in the darkest of places. We don't know how the gospel got to this city. There's no record of it in the book of Acts. We don't know how it got there, but the gospel got to Pergamum. And people living in this godless city where Satan lived according to Jesus, even in this city, the gospel transformed and brought people to faith in Christ. Sometimes I think we look around our city and we look around our world and we see it becoming a darker place. We see it becoming a place where the values and the culture is pushing God out or actively rebelling against him. As Christians, I think we feel under pressure sometimes, and that's gonna get worse. The next 20 to 30 to 40 years, the city we live in will get darker, and Christianity will become less and less and less. But I just wanna encourage you tonight, especially those of you who are younger, and who are gonna live through the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I want to encourage you that the gospel transforms even in the darkest of places. And I wanna encourage you to continue to carry the gospel with you in the next 10 and 20 and 30 years so the people in living in darkness can see light and be transformed. Anyway, there's this church in this city where Jesus says that Satan lives. Now we're from Northern Ireland and so we really like the negative stuff, you know. We're the people that if someone says something good to us and then they say something bad, all we remember is the bad thing, don't we? We can't even remember the good thing they said. We just focus on that bad thing and we go to bed and we think about that bad thing and then we start to get angry about that bad thing. That's just the way we are. We're from Northern Ireland. We like to focus on the negative. And sometimes when it comes to these letters, to these churches, the, 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 the thing that we can do is kind of jump into the negative, jump into the thing that Jesus picks them up on. But I don't want to do that just yet because 
the positive here is incredible. This little church are absolutely incredible. Why are they incredible? Have a look at verse 13. In this city where Satan lives according to Jesus, look what Jesus says about them. Yet you remain true to my name. Hey, little church, in this very dark city, I just want to applaud you. Because even though everyone around you is telling you to let go of me, even though everyone around you is telling you to reject me, even though everyone around you is telling you to do things that I don't want you to do, you've remained true to my name. You've honored me in public. You've stood for me in your workplace. You've lived the way I've wanted you to live in this dark city. Well done, church. You've honored me. You've held to my name. You've been true to me. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for Jesus to say to us? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That when one day we, we stand before him, he's able to say, listen, I saw you living in that city that was dark. And you remain true to me. I saw you in your university halls and I saw how difficult it was at times, but you remain true to me. Well done. I saw you in the workplace and I saw how they tried to put you under pressure to, to be a certain way, to say certain things, to live a way that wouldn't please me, and you didn't. Well done. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Jesus applauds this church for remaining true to his name. But I mean, there was a risk. You see, there was a risk to these people, which makes it even more impressive. Have a look at verse 13. Look what he says about them there. And again, this is just incredible. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas was a member of the congregation. He might have even been their minister. And Antipas was put to death because of his faith. And we don't have the, 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 the exact records, but tradition would say that he was actually killed by Nero in this most horrific way. He was put inside this kind of bronze bull, and he was put inside that, and they lit a fire under it, and he burned to death in this bull. Imagine that was me. Imagine that happened to me. And then imagine that the authorities and those who did that to me are saying to you, are you a Christian? Are you not in his church? I don't know about you, but I would be tempted to say, no, don't know the guy. Don't know him. Don't go to church. You know, Caesar's Lord, not Jesus. That's what I'd be tempted to do. But this little church, even under extreme pressure, even when their life itself was at risk, look what Jesus says, verse 13, you did not renounce your faith in me, even when Antipas was killed. You said to the world around you that, that I was better than life, 
that I was more valuable than life itself, even whenever he was killed, you did not renounce your faith in me. They weren't ashamed. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? I mean, we're not going to be put to death, thankfully. We're not even going to be put in prison like some people in other countries. I mean, for us, if we declare we're Christians, people might think we're weird. If we tell people we're Christians and we stand for Jesus, we might get left out sometimes. We might be the butt of joke at times. But the thing that we will face for declaring that we love Jesus and follow Jesus and Jesus is Lord, it's nothing compared to this. And yet I fear that we're ashamed sometimes. Ashamed to identify with him. Wouldn't it be great again if on that day we we stood before him, he could say to us, you were never ashamed of me. You always identified with me. You weren't afraid. You never renounced your faith in me. These guys in Pergamon, they're heroes. They are legends. They are incredible. Don't miss that tonight. They're the type of Christians that we should be aiming to be. Nevertheless, Jesus says, verse 14, nevertheless, you're brilliant. You haven't denied me out there in the world. You've remained true to my name. Nevertheless, let's get on to the rebuke. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to eat to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, my guess is tonight as we sit here, we're going, what? The teachings of Balaam? Huh? The Nicolaitans? What? Before we get on to the details though, I want you to notice what Jesus is rebuking them for. He's rebuking them for holding teachings and believing teachings and starting to embrace teachings that contradict what the scriptures say. So I just, if you get nothing else tonight, that's the rebuke. People in the church are starting to embrace teachings that scripture contradicts. They contradict scripture. And what they're trying to do in the church is they're trying to take these teachings that contradict Scripture and they're trying to make it line up with Scripture. They're twisting the Bible and what God has said and they're taking culture and they're trying to make it all work together. Does that make sense? You're looking at me blankly. Does that make sense? Yeah, you get it? Okay. So let's look at the the actual details Um, Balaam you will find and Balak you will find them in Numbers chapter 22. Um, Balak was a king, the king of Moab who were the enemies of God's people and God's people they were coming through Moab and Balak did not like these people and so Balak got Balaam to come and he said Balaam I want you to curse these people. I want you to cast a curse on them and Balaam said listen I can't do it. These are God's people. They have God's blessing upon them. They're in this covenant relationship with God. And if they obey God and follow God, which they're doing, then they're going to have his blessing. But then Balaam said this, but there is a way you can get them cursed. 
that there is a way you can get them cursed. And that's to cause them to break the covenant with God. If you can entice them to break the covenant with God, if you can entice them to rebel against God and go against him, then the covenant says that he will curse them. And so Balak did that. He enticed them with women and with food sacrificed to idols. God's people compromised what Scripture said. They broke the covenant with God and they committed sexual immorality and they ate food sacrificed to idols as the text in Revelation tells us. They compromised. And it's the same with the Nicolaitans. Again, we we don't know much about them. There's a theory that Nicholas, who's one of the um, deacons mentioned in the book of Acts, there's this theory that he kind of went off a little bit wild and a bit crazy, and he came up with this new sect. And they claimed to be Christians, so they said, yes, we're Christians, we identify with Jesus, we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, but we also want to embrace everything that culture's doing. We love Jesus, but we want to engage in the sexual immorality that's happening in our city. We love Jesus, but we also want to enjoy all of the idol worship that's happening up on those hills up there. And so they compromised the Nicolaitans, and they taught that you could have both and. You could identify with Jesus and be a Christian, but also embrace things that the Bible said you could not. And they did all sorts of gymnastics to try to make the two line up. Twisting and changing and altering scripture to make it all go together. It's really ironic, isn't it? This church are in this city. And the city are threatening to kill the Christians. And the church are standing strong in the world they live in. And yet the threat to the church is coming from within. The threat to the church's existence is coming from within. It's coming from people embracing this idea that you can compromise. That you can call yourself a Christian and also embrace the sin of the world and make them fit. The biggest threat was coming from within. It's like the Trojan horse. I don't know if that story's a myth, but you know the Trojan horse, they're in the siege and they're winning the battle, all of that good stuff. And then in the battle of Troy, this big horse is set outside the gates, this huge big horse, and they open the gates and they bring the horse in. And of course, the horse is full of soldiers and all the men get out and they kill everybody in the city. It's like that. The threat in Pergamum is from within. And I want us to realize tonight that very often the biggest threat to the church and the church's survival and the church's health and the church's strength, very often the biggest threat is from within. My generation, and those of you here tonight who are younger than me, I'm 37, so there's a good few of you. I just want to let you know that there is a big threat there is a chance that we will be the generation who embraces the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Balaam. There's a a chance, a very high chance that we will be the generation who let the Trojan horse in. And I want to suggest tonight, 
Some of you will find this difficult, but I want to suggest tonight that, that the Balaam and the Nicolaitans of our day is progressive Christianity. Now, that word progressive, it sounds good, doesn't it? We like progress, you know? We don't like being stuck in the past. So progressive Christianity, progressive sounds like it's something that's good. Progressive suggests it's something that's good for the future too, doesn't it? But progressive Christianity, can I encourage you tonight, is just like the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Balaam. It's something that we can easily embrace, that if we embrace will weaken and eventually destroy the church. Now what am I talking about whenever I'm talking about progressive Christianity? Some of you know, and some of you are going, what are you even on about, Marty? So, so let me just give you a few ideas, a few thoughts, a few things to look out for. And I, I, I guarantee if you're a younger person here tonight and you read Christian books, I guarantee you'll see a number of these in the books you're reading just now by the most popular authors. So what are some of the things? Well, the atonement for one, they deny that. The thought of Christ being a sacrifice for sin, the thought of God the Father actually punishing Jesus for sin, they call that cosmic child abuse. The atonement is off the cards in progressive Christianity. Jesus was just an example on the cross, showing us how to suffer. They will deny the biblical authority of Scripture. The Bible is just a book. It's just an ancient spiritual guide. It's not inerrant. It's not authoritative. It's just written by well-meaning people in history who were just writing what they knew at that time to the best that they could. But in progressive Christianity, we, we don't build our life on this. We don't believe every story in this. We don't take this too seriously. In progressive Christianity, original sin is out the window. They don't believe in original sin. It's being kind of just pushed away. Now, it's not that they don't believe that sin, sin exists in progressive Christianity. Sin is bad in progressive Christianity. But this idea that we're all sinners by nature and it's been passed down by Adam and Eve and that everybody needs Christ no matter what, that's out the window. To believe that sin separates us from God, that's nonsense. According to progressive Christianity, it's just our shame about it that separates us. I wonder, you younger folk, I wonder, have you read and seen these things in the books you read or the sermons you listen to online? The deity of Christ, was he God, was he not? In progressive Christianity, it doesn't really matter. The physical resurrection of Jesus, Again, it might have happened, but if it didn't, it doesn't really matter. In progressive Christianity, the virgin birth, again, it might have happened, but it's no, no big deal if it did or didn't. The sinlessness of Jesus, even the sinlessness of Jesus is questioned. Whenever he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman and says, it's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs, this is viewed as Jesus being racist in progressive Christianity and he's being corrected. And then there's the things that progressive Christianity affirm. They affirm LGBTQ relationships and marriage. 
They affirm that that can go together with the Bible, that the two are compatible. They affirm universalism, this idea that Jesus is not the only way to God, but at the end of the day, everybody's gonna be saved. They affirm pluralism, that all paths eventually lead to the same God. And they believe and affirm that in the Christian life, it's far more important what you do than what you believe. I wonder if you've seen it. I wonder if you younger guys seen it. Have you read it? Have you heard it? You see, the challenge with progressive Christianity is it would just be really nice if we could kind of just embrace all this. It would make our life so much easier, wouldn't it? We wouldn't be called bigots or homophobic or any of those things that people call us in the media, even though they're not true, but we wouldn't be called those things. We could just fit in everywhere we go. We could speak to a Muslim and you know what? You're going to heaven and so am I. Isn't it all good? We wouldn't really need to share the gospel because everyone's going to be saved. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it? It would be so much easier to embrace all of this stuff. It would be so much easier to embrace progressive Christianity. It would be so much easier to try to twist scripture to make it all line up. It would be so much easier to do this. But did you notice how Jesus describes himself? Did you notice how Jesus describes himself in verse 12? Have a look with me there. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now what you might not know about Pergamum is that the symbol of the city was a double-edged sword. And the reason that the symbol of the city was a double-edged sword is because Pergamon had been given by Rome what's called the right of the sword. They had the right to issue capital punishment. The one who wields the double-edged sword in Pergamum is the executioner. And Jesus said, listen, church, I know it'd be much easier for you to embrace the teaching of the Nicolaitans and to live that out. I know that it'd be so much easier for you to embrace the teachings of Balaam, to live that out. But I'm the one who has the sword. And then look what Jesus says to them in verse 16. He says, repent therefore. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, church. Listen, those of you within it. Repent of this, Jesus says. And if you don't, I will come against you. And we can take that to a broader picture, can't we? Because if a church embraces this, if a church doesn't remain true to scripture, if a church embraces the world and tries to make it all line up so it can, life can be easy, the reality is that Jesus closes his church. The church of Scotland embraced all of this stuff 20 years ago and it's dead. 
A lot of the mainline denominations in the states embraced this stuff 30 years ago and it's, they're dead. Jesus is loving and he's kind and he's patient and he's gracious and he's beautiful. But Jesus will not tolerate falsehood in his church. He will not tolerate it. He won't let the church proclaim to be speaking for him whilst affirming things that he does not affirm. Repent, he says. Repent or I will come to you with my sword. I wonder as you sit here tonight as individuals, are there any beliefs that you've embraced that don't line up with scripture? Are there any beliefs that you've embraced because of the culture, because of the world, because it's easy, because you'd like to, because it would just make you fit in? Are there any of those things that you've embraced and you've done some amazing gymnastics with the word of God to make it all fit? It's so tempting. It's so tempting. But tonight, Christ calls you to repent. And sometimes we think of repent being action, but repent can just mean have a change of mind. Have a change of mind. If you're a Christian here tonight, I want to encourage you to base your beliefs and to base your life on God's word alone. Base it on what he has revealed. Base it on what he has made clear and plain. Don't base it on culture. Culture will change. Don't try and do gymnastics so you can fit in. Base your life and base your beliefs wholly on the word of God. The call tonight is not to compromise. And I promise you, those of you who are younger, you're in for a fight. You already know that. You're already in the fight. You're at the front edge of the fight. And in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you're going to have to fight so hard to hold to the Bible. But friends, wouldn't it be great to stand before Christ and for him to say, you held fast to my name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that within all of our hearts there is a desire to compromise. You know within my heart there's that desire. And you know that within the hearts of many of us there is. It would just make our lives so much easier. It would just make living in this city so much easier. But Lord Jesus, I pray that when we are tempted to compromise, when we're trying to, to twist the word of God to fit with culture, that we would remember that, yes, you're the one who died on the cross for us, but also you're the one who's holding the double-edged sword. Oh Lord, for your church across the world who've not compromised, help them to hold fast to the word of God. And for us as individuals, help us also to build our lives upon it to not waver from it, to not twist it, to not change it, but to embrace it and believe it and live it out.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.